0: So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 10th chapter, now the first three verses. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Our Heavenly Father, as we turn now to these great words, these words that speak of a level of commitment and discipleship that we as the church need to re- remember or, or to regain and, and also to remember whose field we are being sent into, that this is indeed your harvest and not ours, and that we will understand and and, and set our course with those thoughts in mind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If it was your desire to conquer the world and to build a great and a mighty kingdom, how do you think you would go about it? Through a show of strength and power or through a show of weakness? Well, more than likely, you would choose strength because that's what the world does. We think of power and strength as the way that we overcome. In fact, the strong survive. The strong tend to overwhelm and overcome those who are weak. So we would definitely set out most people on the planet with a desire to show strength. Well, what would you say? If I told you that someone who had the same desire set about to conquer the world and to set up a mighty kingdom purposefully and knowingly did it through weakness, through human weakness. In fact... He shunned the rich and the powerful. He shunned the many for the few. He shunned the resources for poverty. Everything he did was exactly opposite of what the world would say to do. Now, what would you say if I told you that this same person knowingly and purposefully taught his disciples not to be lions, but to be lambs. And then, knowingly and purposefully, he sent those lambs out into a world crawling with voracious, ravenous, savage, demonic wolves. What would you say if I told you that that was his ultimate plan? Well, the very fact, brothers and sisters, that we are here this morning proves that the plan worked. 2,000 years ago, this is how Jesus set out to conquer the world and to establish a great kingdom. We worship that world conqueror even today. And, and, and what the church continually tries to do is to change the format, to move from a position of weakness to a position of strength. And that's what this passage is going to be about. It is going to be about why Jesus sends us out as an army and a kingdom of lambs. Now, if you've been here, you know that just recently we sort of turned a corner in Luke's gospel. The 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 Galilean ministry is behind us and we have now entered what is called the Perean ministry that will stretch all the way to chapter 19 when Jesus makes his triumphal entry. Now, as part of the Galilean ministry, Luke's primary focus was to introduce Jesus as the supernatural, miracle-working, divine Son of God, incarnate in human flesh, culminating on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, he has turned his face towards Jerusalem and his departure. And so, during these next chapters, two themes are going to sort of take over. One, to describe the nature of the kingdom of God, and he's going to do that through magnificent parables. But also, to teach us what discipleship is all about. Now, if you were here last week, you know that I started an analogy that we're going to continue throughout this ...period or this segment of Luke. And that was the analogy of a great jigsaw puzzle... When we start talking about discipleship, it's almost like having all these different pieces, each one of them sort of identifiable in and of itself, but you don't really get the fullness of the picture until you get them all out on the table and start piecing them together. And when they're all pieced together, then you have the, the picture of what true discipleship actually is. Now, last week, towards that end, we saw three negative examples of discipleship. In other words, three disciple wannabes who were wonderful illustrations of how not to be a disciple. One was over enthusiastic and didn't count the cost. Another, even though he seemed to count the cost, was not willing to spend it and made up a lame excuse. They had to bury his father, who was perfectly well at the time. And then the third one, even though he would follow Jesus wherever he went, he was still looking backwards at the at the world that he came from, that the world had too much of a power on him. And Jesus has called us to go forward. Now, what we have this morning is an example of 72 real disciples who are going to listen to Jesus and accept his commission. Now, it, we're just going to Touch it. I mean, we're not going to be able to deal. It's a whole story that continues here in chapter 10. But we're only going to deal with these first three verses. And trust me, these are enough. These two metaphors that Jesus puts together, runs into each other, are, are simply stunning if you, if you put them in, in the same concept, which is what I hope to do this morning. So with that said, let's jump right into the text. The first verse is sort of an overview, kind of setting the scene, and the second and third go into these two metaphors. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Notice how Luke once again starts us off with sort of an arbitrary designation of time. We don't know how much time has passed and we don't really know where they are. But we 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 know that he left uh, um, Galilee and he's headed down sort of towards Jerusalem, but it's going to be a circuitous route. He's not going to go straight. And he went through Samaritan territory. He was not received in one of their villages. He went on. We talked about him being on the road last week. Now, sometime after that is when this happens. Now, I believe that they've made it through Samaria. I don't think that they're in Samaria anymore. I think that they've either made it to Judea, a certain part of it, or they're across the Jordan in um, Perea, which is where some of this is going to take place. Luke doesn't feel it is necessary to tell us. So after what has just happened, the Lord appointed. Now, when Luke uses that title Lord, even though the word kurios in the Greek can be used for a polite address or of an earthly master... When Luke uses it, and he uses it far more than the other gospel writers, he is referring to the divine, supernatural, miracle-working Son of God that he introduced in the Galilean ministry. It is a sign of divinity. And the word that he uses for appointed is also that just exactly that kind of a sign. Luke only uses this word twice in his two, um, letters or two, um, uh, works that he has. One is here and the other is in the first chapter of Acts when Matthias is appointed and both of them are divine appointments. So Jesus is sovereignly as the sovereign Lord now appointing Others to go out into his fields. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Now here we find the great controversy of this particular um, passage. Um, it's something that I simply can't deal with today. It was way too complex. We'll talk about it a little bit in the after church. But if you're following along in the King James or the New American Standard, you probably notice that your Bible says 70 others. Where if you're in the ESV or the NIV, it says 72 others. So which is it? 72 or 70 It's not a big difference, but it is a difference. Well, as I said, I don't have time to go into it, but let me just explain this to you. This is not a conflict. It is a copyist error that occurred somewhere along the line. It has nothing to do with whether or not the text is infallible or inerrant. Somewhere along the line, a copyist changed the number, either from 72 to 70 or from 70 to 72. Now, the problem is, is we have pretty much equal attestation to both numbers. So, which one is it? Well, I'll give you some arguments in the after church if we have time. But for now, I just want you to know this does not constitute any kind of a discrepancy in the text. This has to do with how a copyist um, uh, copied it and how the editors of your Bible have interpreted the difference between the two. Well, anyway, after the Lord appointed 72 others, meaning other than the apostles and sent them on ahead of him. Now, the word for sent here is our familiar word apostello, from which we get the noun apostle. It simply means to send. Now, interestingly, something else I don't have time to go into, I will go into the after church, is that that these are sent ones, sent by Jesus, and yet, and they're also given powers. They're given the power to heal, they're given the power to Cast out demons, but they aren't formal apostles. These are not of the same nature as the twelve, even though much of the wording here is very similar. And, and, And that can be confusing, but actually these are probably the world's first apostlers. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, it's because it's made up. I made it up. You'll never find it in any dictionary. But it just simply is a way to referring to the sent ones, the ones who are sent into the mission field on behalf of Christ, but who are not of the formal apostolic office, which which ended with those apostles. Now, they have certain powers, but they are not of the same nature. So they're apostlers, and when we talk about what they go out to do. We say they're apostling again, made up words, but I think descriptive of what it means to be a sent one. So these 72 disciples are sent into the areas around Jesus. Now notice what it says that he, they were sent on ahead of him. Now, literally that actually says before his face. And I kind of wish that they would have translated it that way because, in other words, that kind of puts it into a different perspective. Jesus has turned his face towards his taking up or his being taken up, his ascension. He's turned his face towards Jerusalem and the events that are going to happen there. And now he's sending these 72 apostles or disciples out before his face to go into the areas where he is about to go as preparers for his arrival. And, and if a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, you may remember that we talked about how this was the, the methodology of scripture all the way through that way long ago, God had sent Prophets before Jesus came, before the Messiah, culminating in John the Baptist, who of course was that voice in the wilderness. And then on the night that he was born, or the time that he was born, he sent angels to herald the coming of the Lord. When he went into the Samaritan village, he sent messengers into the village to prepare his way. Now he's doing that with 72. He's sending them out into the surrounding areas to prepare the hearts of the people for. Jesus to come. And to continue his ministry in their midst. And brothers and sisters, that, that, that is a reflection of what the methodology of the kingdom is. And we need to pay attention to it. Way too often we think this is our church, our evangelism, our harvest. And, and, and therefore we need to go out and, and fill our churches with people. We have to remember something. We are messengers. We are just here to bring the, bring the good news of the gospel, we don't save anyone. It's, it's only the power of the Holy Spirit who saves people. We're just simply those who are, are, are commissioned to, to share the good news about Jesus and to, and, and to either be just before or just after the magnificent saving work, the grace of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of the model that we see here. Now, you might have noticed that I skipped over uh, one little phrase. I want to go back to it, and did on purpose. Um, and that's the way that he sent them out. He sent them out two by two. Now, why do you suppose he did that? What, what would be the reason? And, and I think in a more modern context, we would think, well, wait a minute. 72 means you're only going, you're gonna cut your workforce in half. Why not send out 72 of them? Why not send out 72 venues instead of 36? Why send them out two by two? We can double our exposure if we look at it that way. Well, there's some reasons that Jesus sent them out two by two. First of all, it's just for the mutual encouragement and accountability. These guys and all missionaries and evangelists go out into a very difficult world. They go into a hard road and they're under the attack of the enemy all the time. And they need to encourage each other and they also need to keep each other straight. They need to, to, to teach the to keep the doctrine from being corrupted, which is very easy to do under the duress of the attack of the enemy. So it just makes more sense for them to go out two by two for mutual encouragement and um uh, uh, accountability. But also from a Jewish standpoint, it was absolutely necessary. And the reason is because of the penchant in Judaism and the Old Testament For the necessity of witnesses to be two of them instead of one. In fact, going back to the book of Deuteronomy, this is what we read. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So in other words, when Jesus sent these groups of evangelists out into the surrounding villages, no one's going to listen to one person because it's the witness of one rather than the witness of two. If you have two witnesses, then they're going to perk up and pay attention. And so we see that this is just the best way of doing it. In computerly ease, we talk about best practices. This is just the best practice of sending people out two by two. It's God's wisdom, as Solomon gives us in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm just pulling a couple of what he says out because he goes into greater detail. He says two are better than one. And he goes on to talk about why two are better than one. And then he ends that by saying a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You wind people together, they're stronger than the sum of their parts. And so therefore, it's just the way to go about it. But let me let, let me leave you with a principle here. Because one of the things that we're trying to do is to establish the principles of discipleship. And, and how to go about it. Jesus is more interested in the quality of his disciples than he is in the quantity of his disciples. Not that he's not interested in quantity. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that Jesus wants true, real disciples. When he gave us the Great Commission, he said, "'Go therefore into the world, make disciples of all nations.'" Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He doesn't say go out there, share the gospel, get a confession, put a mark in your belt and move on and count as many people as you possibly can. No, you are going to be judged or gauged by the, by, by by the strength of your spiritual children and grandchildren. That's, that's the way that you look. Are, are they being taught? Are, are, are they on the mission field? Are they going out into the community? Are they the laborers that he's going to talk about in just a minute? Jesus was very interested that we raised up true radical disciples and not just the number of things. Boy, that is... A lesson the church needs to relearn. Well, anyway, let's go on to the first of these two great metaphors that Jesus puts together, Luke puts together. But Jesus says, let's look at the first one um, in verse two. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, I think the first thing that we have to determine here is what does he mean by harvest? What kind of harvest? Harvest is he talking about? And I'm not talking about whether it's corn or, or, or wheat or barley. Probably it is either wheat or barley. At least that's the way that I envision it. But in, in a metaphoric sense, what kind of people is he talking about? Now, some people see the idea of the harvest in a very biblical sense as, as a statement of judgment. Okay? Like going back to Joel, for instance, we get this as, uh, as an image. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. We see the same thing in the book of Revelation, the 14th chapter. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So without a doubt, there is the idea of judgment here. But I don't agree with those. And there are good scholars who believe this, like John MacArthur. I I, I don't see this as being nothing more than judgment. I think that's making the same mistake that John and James made earlier when they thought that they were missionaries of judgment when actually Jesus corrected them that they were missionaries of mercy, that this is the time of mercy. So when I look at this, I see that this great harvest, this great field is not a mixture of the weeds and the wheat, but rather this represents God's elect. This represents those that God has set aside for his purpose. This is his harvest, as we will see later on. And that, I believe, puts a different slant on it. But, of course, there is still involved with it the idea of eschatological judgment. So that's the way that we are going to look at this harvest. as a harvest of souls of those that God has set aside for his kingdom. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. What does he mean by plentiful? In what way is this harvest plentiful? Well... I think two ways come to mind. The first way is the expanse of the harvest. In other words, the way I see this imagery is of Jesus and these men, these 72 and the 12 who are the apostles, standing at the edge of a vast field. Um, Have you ever driven through Kansas and seen those fields of amber grain, when they're they're ready to be uh, harvested, literally the earth curves before you see the end of the field. They're massive. They go in every direction. And that's the imagery that I see. It is an expansive, plentiful, bountiful field expanding out in all directions. But it is also plentiful in the, in the sense that the field is ready to be harvested. If indeed this is grain, well, it means that the kernels have reached maturity and they're about just to fall off of the plant. And so therefore, not only is it a vast harvest, but it is a ready harvest, ready for the picking. But there's a problem. With the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, continue to look at this as the image of Jesus and these men standing at the edge of this almost boundless field. Now, the problem is, is they don't have the modern harvesting mechanisms that we have. No combines, no machinery where one or two people can literally harvest a whole field. None of that. And the urgency comes up in the sense that when a plant, when a fruit of any kind is ripe and ready to be harvested, there's a window of time that you have. You you, you can't just leave it there and decide I'm going to pick a little bit here and a little there because the harvest will rot and you will lose everything. So we see in the proverb that Jesus gives a real dilemma or the metaphor that he gives. We have a real dilemma We have this incredible size of a harvest. It is beyond, it's discouraging just to look at it. And at the same time, it is all ripe and it comes to, it would be wonderful if it ripened one segment at a time, but it doesn't. The whole field comes ripe at the same time and you look around you and there's no laborers to go into the field to harvest it. Now, what? before I get into what he calls us to do, what does this signify? What is this vision or this image that Jesus is giving us? Well, on the one hand, as I've already said, I don't see this as the field that represents every human being in the face of the planet. And what that means is I don't see it either as a field that will be harvested in judgment and somehow the plant's divided. There's no indication of that here. But by the same token, I don't see it in an Arminian sense that all these people are out there and it's their decision as to whether or not they're going to accept Christ as their Savior. And therefore, the 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 the, the, the urgency of the worker to get out there and share the gospel with every last one of them is overwhelming. I don't think that's the metaphor either. In fact, I think what Jesus is doing here is using hyperbole to make a point. The hyperbole of these three elements going together create an impossible dilemma. The combination of the expanse of the field along with the fact that it's ripe and needs to be harvested right now And the fact that there are not enough workers to do it, and no matter how many workers that you bring in, you're still going to fall short. And even if you get out in that field and work yourself to death, you're only going to be able to deal with a fraction of that field. So what Jesus is doing is creating a, a, a situation or a dilemma that is impossible. And in my mind, that's exactly the point. The point is that this harvest is not going to be made by human hands. This harvest is beyond us. It cannot be done by however many workers that we have. So this harvest not only needs, but demands supernatural intervention. And that's what we're going to see next. This is not our harvest. This is God's harvest on our own. We can't do this. On our own, no matter how hard we work, we will fall short. That there is, a, that there is a, a massive number of people who are out there who need to hear the gospel. Now, let me explain something to you. If we look at it from that perspective, and we look at this as God's harvest, and every kernel of wheat in that expansive field belongs to the Lord, how many of those kernels of wheat are going to fall and die and rot? Zero. Because of the Lord's. None of them. He's not going to lose any of them. Okay? In in other words, he he makes this absolutely and positively clear when he says uh, uh, in John that um, I will not lose a single one of those that the Lord has brought me. Okay, every single one of them will make their way into the kingdom of heaven. All right. So none of them are going to be lost. And so therefore, the 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 idea of the hyperbole hyperbole of this does not just end with what's happening right then and there. I see this as not the reason Luke doesn't give us any space and time here is because he doesn't want us to think in those terms. This is not spatial and it is not uh, chronological. In other words, this is every single person who is on the face of the planet. And it is also across the entire amount of time that constitutes what we call the church age or the gospel age or the age of mercy, the age that we are in right now. The age during which the harvest will occur until... Every single kernel of grain is brought into the barn and not one single one of them is lost. It is God's work in the world and it is not just ours, but it is also a statement of the missionary plan of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke has given us multiple images of this already. I don't know if you've know, paid attention to it, but he has been planting seeds of the missionary outreach of the church all through his gospel, starting with that great epic parable of the sower who went out to sow and the field is the world and the seeds are the gospel. That is the, the sustainable field. That is the the the, the 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 missionary purpose of the church. And then immediately they got into a boat to go to the other side and brave the storms. Doesn't matter as long as Jesus is on the boat to a spooky Gentile graveyard where they save a demoniac and then go home. That's a another picture of the missionary outreach of the church and then even the feeding of the 5,000 because Jesus is the one who had the increase and the disciples are the ones who distributed the bread of life. And so we've already seen this model, this model where the, the, the task that you have before you is the task of the kingdom. But you are not going to be able to make it work in and of yourself. You need divine intervention. God is the one who is going to do the harvesting. And then oddly, Jesus says, therefore, pray Urgently or earnestly to the Lord of the Harvest to send more workers into His harvest, and, and 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 that's an extraordinary statement, at least the way that I see it. So let's go on to the end of that verse and take that apart. When you run across therefore in Scripture, what do you ask yourself? What's it there for? It's there to to be the answer to the horrible dilemma that we find in the first half. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This is going to be the solution to that dilemma or because of that dilemma. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Pray earnestly. Now. In the very beginning of the next verse, don't think we are simply talking about one activity here. There are two activities that Jesus puts on the table. He's getting ready to tell his disciples to go. He is sending them out. So there is definitely an action that's going to be part of that. But that's not the only action he is calling them to because he says, Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest will send more workers into the fields that word earnestly is a strong word you know we we pray in different ways we all do when Kay and I sit down to a meal and I pray for the food that God would bless it I pray in one way when we pray for our our daughters or or, or if someone's sick or if there's been an accident someone one's one's Life is in the balance. We pray differently. There's a deeper intensity to it. There's an earnestness to it. And that's what this word means. It is to plead, to beseech on your knees, to get down. It is an intensity. There's an urgency. Please, Lord, send more workers into the field. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you got on your knees and prayed earnestly? I don't mean just passing, but prayed earnestly, not just for the harvest, but for the workers. When's the last time you prayed for this worship service? For your elders, for your pastor, for the teachers in our school? When's the last time you prayed for the evangelistic or the missionary outreach of the church? When's the last time you prayed earnestly for revival? That's what Jesus is calling us to do, to pray with a a, a depth of of intensity. The Lord of the harvest would send out more workers. Now, notice that, Lord of the harvest. That's the next thing that he he brings out here. Um, It's it's now, in in the the sense of the metaphor, that would be the owner of the field, okay? Uh, Little l in this sense. That would be the owner of the field. And the owner of the field would be the one who has... Paid and arranged for the field to be plowed, for it to be seeded. He has nurtured those plants all the way up so that they're, they're, they're ready for harvest. And so therefore he is the one who has the most at stake if anything goes wrong with the harvest, but he is also the one who will benefit the most if it's a bumper, a good harvest. And so what Jesus tells his workers, is to pray earnestly to the real Lord of the harvest. And that is, of course, Him. It is God. This, again, I can't overemphasize this. This is not our field. We are not in control. This is God's field. It is God's harvest. It is God's grain. Every kernel of it belongs to Him. And every single one of them, Jesus is going to bring into the kingdom at the time that He has designated so, in other words, we're, we're to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest for what? For laborers. Okay? that he would send more laborers. Now, don't think that that were some of the problems of biblical interpretation is that we use the same words in English, but they're different words in Greek. And that's the case here. That's not the word apostello. That's not the normal word to go. In fact, it is a, a word that has a slightly different connotation. Actually, a better translation would be thrust. It carries with it the implication that whether or not that person wants to be thrust into the field for the harvest, we are praying that you would thrust them, that you would bring them. Even if they don't want to be part of it, it's kind of the difference between a volunteer army. And if there's not enough volunteers, well then, instigate a draft and bring people in that may or may not want to be part of that endeavor. This is how important it is. Thrust them, get them up off their couches, get them up off of their. Um, uh, get, oh, I shouldn't have phrased it that way. Uh, get them a, away from their comfort zones and and out into the field to do the work of the Lord. But notice who he actually tells them to pray for. Now, the reason that this is interesting to me is because I would do it completely different. I, I, I would not do it this way. If the Lord just said, Kirby, I want you to pray for the harvest, pray to the Lord of the harvest, okay, for his harvest, then I would pray for the harvest. I would pray for the wheat, I would pray for those souls out there that the Holy Spirit would act upon them and lead them to a repentance and the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I do that all the time. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a good thing. We should pray for that. But that's not what Jesus says here. That's not the essence of this metaphor. He doesn't say pray for the wheat. He says pray for the laborers. Pray for disciples. Now, wait a minute. Just stop. I just just want you to put this into its perspective. If that's the Lord's field and every kernel of grain in that field belongs to him and not one single one of them is going to be lost. Jesus himself said this in John 17. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. If every single one of those that are in the field are going to come into the kingdom, then why do we even need laborers and why do we need to pray for them? Brothers and sisters, the focus is on the disciples. The focus of this analogy is on discipleship. The focus is on you and it's on me. He's he's not just praying for for the harvest. Brothers and sisters, every person that the Lord wants into his kingdom is going to come into his kingdom, whether it's going to be by your hand and your mouth or someone else's. The Lord's not going to lose anyone. What this prayer is that you would recognize that sitting on the sidelines and doing nothing and waiting for Jesus to come back, going to church once a week, not tithing, not involved with your church whatsoever, is not what Jesus has in mind for you. What he has in mind for you is radical discipleship. And so he's telling people like me and people like you who are in the field to pray for the rest, to bring them out of their doldrums and bring them into active service. You know why? Because people who are involved with the active service of the kingdom of God make Better disciples and better disciples want to know more about God's Word. And they spend more time in God's Word. And if you spend more time in God's Word, you're going to spend more time praising and glorifying God. Which just so happens to be the reason you were made. To bring glory to God. To worship Him forever. You make better worshipers. You make better disciples. You make a better kingdom. And so therefore the Lord says, pray for those. Pray that they'll be radical disciples. And not just... People on the sideline. I love the way that William Hendrickson, one of the commentators that I read puts it. He says, notice that the Lord says to pray for laborers and not loafers. He's not asking you to pray for more kingdom squatters. He's not asking you to pray for a whole bunch of pagans that we can bring into our church and make them feel like they're laborers. No, he's saying pray for radical disciples. Pray for kingdom builders. Pray for those who are going to pick up their cross and follow me and recognize that I have no place to put my head and they may not have a place to put their heads. Jesus never promised you that there would be a life of ease. But he promised you that there would be rewards in heaven. Brothers and sisters, you do realize something. That Jesus and these men stand at the cusp of the greatest natural expansion of any religion that has ever existed on the face of the earth. No other religion has done this. And when I say natural, what I mean is plenty of religions have expanded, but they expand through conquering nations and forcing them to worship as they worship. Islam is a great example of that. But Christianity has never grown that way. It has grown like like yeast in a lump of dough. And, and so therefore, these men are on the cusp of something that is extraordinary. This religion that Jesus is putting together, this kingdom that is he establishing, will take the world by storm, the known world. It will change the course of history. It will change countless lives Turn them from evil people into people pursuing God's piety. It will reach every single nation on the face of the planet. It will reach rich and poor. It'll reach the mighty and the, and, 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 and the forgotten, and the marginalized. It will reach into the deepest, darkest places of this earth. And it will reach into the empires to the very halls of power. There is no place that humanity exists that will not be impacted By the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the field that they have in front of them. And he says pray that there will be laborers. That understand the significance of this. And don't get all wrapped up in the world that they live in. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send people into his harvest. as I said, I don't see this strictly as a sign of judgment. I I, I see this as a sign. This is a time of mercy, but that does not mean that this is a forever, that there's no time limit whatsoever. There is eschatological judgment, and more than likely you are not going to live until the end of the age when Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom must be declared throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Chances are you're not going to live there, but you're were going to go to him a lot sooner than that because the time that we're on this earth is just a vapor it's a dust and so therefore as long as you have breath in your body there is hope but when that leaves and you face the judgment seat of Christ then you have judgment and that's the urgency the urgency of this is to get workers in the field not that is going to change the landscape of the kingdom But that's the way that God has ordained that the kingdom will be built by kingdom builders getting out to tell people about Jesus. So what a glorious picture that is. And so Jesus, after he makes that statement, he turns in verse 3 and he says, Go your way, behold. I think it's a little anemic the way that is translated. There really needs to be an exclamation point that is very emphatic. Go. And then he says, Behold, but I want you to pay attention. That, that, that's a word that means look, okay? <laughs> pay attention to what I'm about to say. So we have this glorious picture of this great field. And he says, Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now he starts that out by saying, I send you out. And I just want you to notice something. Again, we're back to our... Word apostello. So Jesus is sending the, to those apostles out uh, to, to apostle. And he's saying, as you go, make sure you pray. And he has just given us this fantastic picture of this great and wonderful harvest. Okay, And pray to me that I would bring more people into that harvest. And And, and he said, go. But I want you to pay particular attention to the way that he words this. He says, behold, I send you Jesus is the sender of those he is sending into a field that is filled with ravenous savage voracious demonic wolves now, at the end of the last Image, boy, it looked like all we got to do is go into the field with our reap and just reap those uh, plants. They're all going to fall off the vine. They're all designated for salvation. This is going to be easy. But then Jesus says that is a hostile field. He switches imagery on you. It, it, it's, it is, and among all that wheat are ravenous wolves. And they're just waiting for a tasty morsel like you to come along. And so rather than build you up and strengthen you and send you out with heavy artillery and send you out to like lions to tear them limb from limb, I'm going to send you out as a bunch of lambs. And, 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 and as I said, the metaphor slightly changes here. Because instead of a whole bunch of wheat, talking about the vast size, we sort of of zero in to the individual. Because what he is doing is he is sending his disciples out into the fields where the lambs are. Where his lambs are. And they're surrounded by vicious wolves. Now, you know the way that wolves hunt. You've probably seen documentaries on this. They hunt in packs. And the way that they hunt is to separate the weak of the herd from the herd and then they get around it and then they destroy it because they know that if the herd stands against them that there's strength in those numbers. So they separate out the weak so that they can easily devour them like a lamb in the midst of the sheep. But Jesus says, I and sending you out as helpless defenseless lambs to save helpless defensive defenseless lambs who are surrounded by ravenous savage demonic wolves and this is the battle plan this is the way he intends to conquer the world, and to build his great kingdom, it just doesn't make any sense, do it, does it? But it's it's even more interesting than that, And, and, and I'll tell you why. There's a very good reason for this. But it's even more interesting than that, because Jesus has presented himself, or he will present himself in the Gospels as the good shepherd, okay? Takes care of his sheep. Now, in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew has this particular passage, at the very end, it's all in the 10th chapter, but at the end of the ninth chapter, this is what we read. When he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus is that shepherd. He has compassion on the people because they're harassed. They're, they've got these wolves all surrounding them, ready to eat them, and, and he has compassion for that. And, and he even calls himself the good shepherd. You know, that's out of John's 10th chapter, the great good shepherd and, uh, uh, allegory, actually. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Elsewhere, he says, I am the door, meaning the door of the sheep pen. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out in and out and find pasture. I'm, I'm, my sheep are going to find pasture and and pastoral scenes of clear water and and safety and serenity. But here the good shepherd says to his sheep, I am going to send you into this dark and dangerous world filled with ravenous wolves. How how do we reconcile these two? How how do we see Jesus as both the good shepherds and the one that we read earlier who said, I send you out knowingly, purposefully as lambs in the midst of. Of wolves. Well, actually, the answer is a lot easier than it sounds like. It's multifaceted, but it's pretty straightforward. It is, there's not a lot of uh, misunderstanding about it. Why does Jesus want lambs to be sent out? One of the reasons is because they are defenseless and helpless. They can't do anything on their own. Just like we just learned about the harvest can't be done by us. It's got to be done by some kind of supernatural intervention. Lambs, at least in their weakness, in the midst of a bunch of wolves, have an understanding of how weak they are and how impossible it is for them to battle these ravenous wolves. So they understand their weakness and that's the first step. But the second step, brothers and sisters, is this is the way that God has done it. There's a reflection here that I want you to see. If we can just step back for just a moment. I want you to consider, try to put yourself in Jesus' shoes for just a moment if it's possible. And you will see that he is asking his disciples to do exactly what he has done. For Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And his Father sent him... From a place of safety, heaven, sent him in his perfection and his holiness. He's without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And God the Father sent him into the midst of pack of wolves. He sent him right into the midst of the of the bulls of Bashan. We we didn't read that in that 22nd Psalm, but we also read this, Jesus later on, I mean earlier from where we started, for the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. In other words, God could have sent his son to this world any way that he wanted to, with power and glory, with legions of angels. And he could have brought judgment upon the world right then and there, but he didn't do it. He sent his son as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And not only does that refer to his, his position as the sacrificial atonement, but it also talks about the methodology The way that he came into this world, the way that he permeated the world, the kind of army and kingdom that he is going to establish is not an army of lions, but an army of lambs. Because no one takes lambs very seriously. And all those wolves out there circling a lamb, getting ready to enjoy lunch, they're not going to pay any attention to a little lamb that comes up and says, Would you please move aside? I'm going to save your lunch. Oh, come on in, (laughs) that's fine, you know. uh, I've got lunch today, but your lunch for tomorrow. You know, you're fine, you just stay right here and we'll take care of you in time. Nobody's going to pay attention to the fact that that lamb carries the biggest stick on the face of the planet. Which is the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one recognizes that that lamb is going to change the face of humanity. It's just like that picture. We'll look at it later on in in John, where I'm uh, I'm sorry in Luke. We'll look at it later on where a woman has a lump of dough, and and you know she's got a little bitty tiny bit of leaven, and she puts it in the dough, and it permeates its way all the way through. And Jesus says, "This is like the kingdom of God. This is the way we're going to do things." We're gonna we're gonna work our way through the dough while it's under the cover. No one is going to know what we do until it's too late. They're going to find that we are going to change the focus of of, of everything. We're gonna save the lambs, and guess what? Even some of those wolves are going to discover that instead of wolves in lambs clothing, they are actually sheep in wolves clothing because they're gonna. Did I say that right? You know what I meant. They're, they're, they're actual lambs in, in and of themselves. And so that's the, that's the nature of the kingdom. So Jesus is not asking his disciples to do anything that he hasn't already done. He was sent to this world as a lamb in the midst of wolves. And he conquered the world. Now to go back to my original statement, I'll make this short. Question, If it was up to you. If I was going to establish a kingdom on this world and try to conquer it, how would I do it? I would do it through power and strength. That's the only way I would attempt it. I would count the cost and I would recognize that I could not do it on myself. So I would have to gain around me human strength. And what Jesus said is for the task ahead of you, that's not going to cut it. Every time, brothers and sisters... Every time that the church has tried to use the weapons and tactics of the world, it has failed miserably. From the 4th century when Constantine tried it, to the Middle Ages when Roman Catholicism did it through either the... the, the um, um, Not the Crusades, that's my second one. Thank you very much. Uh, just... Totally out of there. But through the Inquisitions or through the Crusades, both of them disasters. Or when they tried to destroy the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War in Germany, devastating impacts. The fight between Protestants and Catholics all through that and even into modern times. There's a group out there called the New Apostolic Reformation. I've talked about them before. They're none of those things. And yet they are trying to use the weapons and the tools of the culture against the culture to win the world for Christ. They will make a disaster of the churches that they infect. That's not the way the kingdom works. Jesus came as the lamb of God and he says, I am going to infiltrate the world. I'm going to send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. But guess what? I don't lose my people. I'm not going to lose any of those sheep that are out there in the midst of the wolves that you're going out to rescue. And I'm not going to lose a single solitary missionary that I send into that field. Because you're not going out powerless. You're just going out without your own power. You're going out with the power of God, the power of Christ. This Holy Spirit goes with you. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, never put God to the test. But when, when the Lord sends you into the belly of the beast, when he sends you into the den of wolves, when he sends you right into the middle of a field that is crawling with evil and wolves, and says, find my sheep and bring them back, then you are the safest person on earth. You are immortal until the Lord is finished with you. And when he's finished with you, there's no place you can hide But as long as he is sending you where he's going to send you and giving you the strength and the power, then there's nothing, there's not a wolf on the face of the planet that can harm you. So we've learned some things, hopefully, this morning. We've learned, first of all, that when we go back to that little picture of Jesus pulling that young man, uh, that, that boy next to him and saying this is great, greatness in the kingdom of heaven and the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Boy, that was an important lesson because that is what Jesus to an infinite level did when he came down here as the humble lamb of God. He says, this is what my arm is going to be like. If you're on your own power, you really don't need to be in my army because you'll fail. You need to be so aware of your need for me, Jesus speaking, that you are helpless and defenseless. And the more helpless and defenseless you are, the more powerful you are because you'll be working with my power, my strength. Secondly, we have learned that we need to pray earnestly, fervently every day that God would raise up more laborers. Not loafers. Not people who are just going to pad the kingdom. We have plenty of those. But real, solid, kingdom-building, radical disciples. And you do realize, brothers and sisters, that that's my job as your pastor. My job as your pastor is not necessarily to make you feel good or to make you feel comfortable. It is to turn you, as best as we can, through the teaching of the the word of God, into kingdom-builders. Radical disciples, laborers for God's harvest. And then after that, go into all the worlds, because this is not just a prayer, it is a command. And as you go, fear nothing. Because even though you are an army of lambs and a kingdom of lambs, you carry the big stick of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the very word of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we are just getting started with this um, beautiful picture of discipleship, but just so taken by the juxtaposition of these two passages. It it really does drive it home, dear Lord, that you actually took some men who were quite lion-hearted, like the sons of thunder, like Peter, and, and even someone like like uh, Matthew, it, it took a lot of courage and, and self-will to be, to be uh, a tax collector in those days. But you took them and you taught them how to be lambs. And that's what we need to know. We need to learn to be defenseless and helpless except with your power. Your power leading and guiding us and giving you all the glory that way because none of it will be due to us. It will all be due to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.